0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying this wonderful and long Labor Day weekend. Today's episode is episode 184, and it's part two of the story of Richard Case Nagel. In last week's episode, we certainly covered a lot of ground and went down the rabbit hole a long ways on Richard Case Nagel. In some ways, we ate the frosting off of the cake first, and so the cake by itself is never as tasty when you do that, and I hope it didn't give you a stomach ache either. Well, that may be the way this episode goes, too. I think, though, we're trying to fit, as my brother Dennis would say, 10 pounds of stuff in a 5-pound bag. And some of what we may cover in the rest of the Nagel episodes will necessarily be redundant, but in greater detail, giving us a progressively deeper insight into this character. But either way, I hope you stick around. I think it's always interesting to listen to the details. And I do have some new revelations sprinkled all the way through these remaining Nagel episodes. Some of them will fill in some of the holes in the story that we left in last week's episode. So if you were scratching your head, I'm not surprised. And all of it together will begin to move us toward a more complete picture of Richard Case Nagel. It may be helpful, though, as a first exercise after last week's heap of frosting to go through a dated summary of the time chronology of Richard K. Snagel. Sometimes when you are packing 10 pounds in a five-pound bag, all of the events get jumbled and lost. Yes, I know, I've said that twice. I really do like that saying. So, we are going to use today's episode to do just that. No, not put 10 pounds in a 5-pound bag, but to go through the chronological summary. And then we'll move on in later episodes to some more detailed elaboration and analysis of the key events surrounding this character. I think you will appreciate today's approach and exercise. Some people boil nagle down to a handful of events and ignore much of everything else. You may do the same by the time this is all over, but the real question for all of us as jurors is what to believe in his story. This is the most intellectually intensive question attached to this part of the wander, And what I am presenting over the course of these next couple of episodes, all of these episodes actually, should better equip you as a juror to do just that. David Reitz is a Richard K. Snagel antagonist, but nevertheless, he has one of the best chronologies available, and it's on his website, Whether you like his take on things or not, he has done extensive research, so I'll use that today, along with some other material, and I'll read verbatim or paraphrase much of what he has in his chronology in order to reorient us all to the dates and major themes in the Nagel story. So here we go. Naturally, it will have a skeptical and somewhat negative bent on Richard Case Nagel, so just keep that in mind for this particular episode. Some of it is deserved. Some of it is not. Don't worry. The kaleidoscope will come into greater focus by the time we complete the series on Nagel. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 184 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Richard Case Nagel was born on August 5th, 1930, in Greenwich Village in New York City. If he were alive today, he would be 93. Just another reminder of how far past in time we are getting from the events around the assassination. Nagel's father died when he was two, and for reasons unknown, he was separated from his mother when he was four. He lived in various foster homes until he was 11 and in an orphanage. Until he was 18. Most assuredly, this kind of childhood experience must have had an impact on the man. On August 5, 1948, at the age of 18, he would enter the U.S. Army and he was trained as a paratrooper at the Army base in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Late in 1949 or early 1950, he began to study Russian at Fort Bragg and he also took an extension course in Mandarin Chinese from the University of California. All of that seemed to be a prelude to monitoring Chinese technical broadcasts while he was in the military, which he did for about five months in that 1950 and 51 time frame. On August 1st, 1951, he would be honorably discharged as a sergeant while serving at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then become a commissioned second lieutenant almost right away on August 2nd, 1951, the next day. Nagel would continue to serve until he resigned his position as a captain on October 29th, 1959, at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Let's spend a little bit of time now on the chronology of the next eight years, between 1951 and 1959, when he served in the military. In 1951, Nagel would arrive at Tegu, South Korea. He'd hit the ground as a second lieutenant, and he would be assigned as the rifle platoon leader to the 24th Infantry Division. And it wasn't long thereafter On Christmas Day, 1951, that Nagel was promoted to first lieutenant, and he would also suffer his first battlefield wound when a grenade fragment exploded and he incurred flesh wounds on his leg and his head. He would continue to fight in the conflict, and then, in August 1952, some eight months later, he would be rotated back to the United States, and there he would be assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. He didn't like being stateside, and he immediately requested reassignment back to Korea. And about four months later, on December 6, 1952, he would again be engaged in battle and experience his second battle wound, when a hand grenade would produce fragments that would pepper his leg and face. But just five days later, on December 11, 1952, he would return to combat after that second injury. He would continue to fight in Korea, leading his troops for the next six months or so through June 11, 1953, when he sustained his third and most serious battle injury. This time again, fragments from a mortar or an artillery shell would create damage to his face and his buttocks. And he also sustained a concussion. In order to treat his injuries because they were serious enough, he was flown to a Tokyo hospital But it didn't take him long to get back onto the battlefield again, which he did in early July 1953, less than a month later. But the Korean War was soon to be ending, and technically on July 15, 1953, he would receive a promotion to captain, which was technically backdated to this point in time, making Nagel the youngest American to receive a battlefield commission to captain during the course of the war. Regardless of the technicality, it was an incredible distinction for this young man, only 23 years of age. The war technically ended on July 27, 1953, and young Nagel had seen action on approximately 175 battle patrols. He had received three Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star, the Korean Service Medal, and the U.N. Service Ribbon. I think it's pretty easy to see that this was no ordinary individual, This was no ordinary soldier. As the Korean War came to an end, Nagel was assigned to Army Language School in Monterey, California, to study Japanese, Russian, and Spanish. There is only one reason that men in the military go to the Monterey, California Language School, and that's to engage in counterintelligence or intelligence training activities that involve languages. And that is exactly what Nagel was doing. As you've already heard, In 1954, he became the sole survivor of his first plane crash, and apparently surviving because of his parachuting skills. He was lucky, as he was not seriously injured in this first crash. During that same year, on July 1, 1954, he was formally assigned to the Army's Counterintelligence Corps School at Fort Hollibird, Maryland, and it was about five months later that he became the sole survivor of yet another plane crash. And he was flown to Bowling Air Force Base Hospital near Washington, D.C., near where the crash itself occurred. He had a jaw that was severely fractured on both sides, and he had sustained a skull fracture as well, and also a severe concussion, which left a permanent depression on the left side of his head, and, as described by his doctors, organic brain damage. It was here during his recovery that he would become connected through his care with a psychiatrist named Dr. Edwin Weinstein. He was a world-renowned doctor that was involved with studying head injuries. Dr. Weinstein would become a central character in the later second trial that would occur related to the bank holdup. By all accounts, Nagel probably should have died that day, and we'll tell the story in a bit more detail later, but he was briefly in a coma. And then, two days later, in an article that was published in the Baltimore Sun, they would report that Captain Nagel was holding his own, remarkably enough, on November 30, 1954. In December 1954, he would still be in the hospital, but the Washington Post would provide another update, saying that he had been making a remarkable recovery. David Reitz, in his antagonist role regarding Nagel, would make it a point to tell the audience that Nagel's mother would later remark that her son had a brilliant career in the Army until he was severely injured in that airplane accident in November 1954, and that after the accident, he underwent a severe personality change and has been and continues to struggle with difficulties ever since then. I think this is an important point for all of us to understand, whether we like it or not. It may be difficult to determine how much of Nagel's brain damage occurred from this plane crash, Regardless, though, it was a real pivot point for this war hero. And I think it's, unfortunately, appropriate to be pointed out as we try to define just what happened to this magnificent fighting force after November 28th, 1954. It seems as if Christmas had delivered some incredible things to him while he was in the Army. And 1954 was no different. On Christmas Day, December 25th of that year, after being in the hospital almost a month he would have his first conscious memories since the plane crash. The Army was obviously encouraged by his recovery, and obviously something was already in the works, because only two days later, on December 27, 1954, he was approved for duty in the Counterintelligence Corps of the U.S. Army. He was still convalescing from this incredibly serious event, and in early January 1955, he was transferred to Walter Reed Army Hospital where he remained hospitalized for the next four months as he progressed related to his injuries. On March twenty seventh, 1955, psychiatrist M.G. McCaleb would state that he agreed with the opinion expressed by earlier observers that this officer has no evidence of psychosis or disabling neurosis. He is immature, he is manipulative, and rather passive-aggressive in his approach to people. I agree that this patient is a management problem, but he does not require further neuropsychiatric hospitalization. That may have been a telling comment inserted by David Reitz in his own chronology of Nagel's progression. What was this man suffering from at the time? Well, we're talking about a young man, 25 years old, who had grown up without a father. He had been abandoned by his mother at a very young age. He'd lived in foster homes and then he joined the military at 18, and then became one of the most decorated battlefield participants in the Korean War, wounded three times, and then surviving two airplane crashes all through the first 25 years of his existence. I think anyone trying to evaluate whether this man might have had troubles doesn't have to look too far to understand that trauma was there, and that it must have accumulated. That statement is so easy to absorb, and it may be one of the more telling statements about this young man. The curious amalgamation of his early childhood years, and then the intense drama that he went through in the early years of being in the Army and participating in a war. It really does set the backdrop for so much that came after. By May of 1955, just a few months later, he had finished his convalescence. And he would report back to duty at the Counterintelligence Corps Intelligence Training Center. And some three months later, on August 12, 1955, he would be designated a military counterintelligence officer, graduating on August 15, 1959, from the Army Intelligence School at Fort Holabird, Maryland. He would get his first assignment as a civic investigator or special agent operating in civilian clothes in Los Angeles, California. In just about a month later, on September 22, 1955, he would be granted top-secret security clearance in the U.S. government. Through that same year and into early 1956, he would engage in those investigative operations on behalf of the CIC in Los Angeles. Principally, that consisted of interviewing civilians, including relatives, friends, and acquaintances of individuals under investigation by the military. For Nagel, those activities would last for about a year taking place from late 1955 through late 1956. It was right around this time frame that he was allegedly recruited as a CIA informant by Herbert Ernest Liebacker, an agent of the CIA's Los Angeles office, and Joseph Devonan, later identified by Nagel from photographs as an official from CIA headquarters. A CIA memorandum of April 7, 1964, identifies Liebacher and Devonin as employees of the Los Angeles field office. But neither man recalls Nagel. According to Nagel, he would function as an unpaid confidential informant for the CIA, off and on, as he put it, until his resignation from the Army in October 1959. Apparently, the physical disfigurement that he had suffered as a result of the second airplane crash was causing real problems for him in the field as he conducted his investigations in Los Angeles. So much so that he was eventually assigned a desk job at Army Counterintelligence. The Army was still conscious of the previous injuries that he had sustained and the potential for their impact on his behavior. And in one internal review, they would cite that the head injury brought on a lack of self-confidence. Nagel would undergo some plastic surgery to partially correct the disfigurement during this time frame. He was getting impatient behind the desk, and during this time frame, he wrote to the Department of the Army requesting an overseas counterintelligence assignment or a return to the infantry. It is what happens next that would lead Nagel into one of the more deeper rabbit holes related to the spy world that he lived in. On May 5, 1956, he was assigned to field operations intelligence in the Far East. As we have mentioned earlier, organizationally, field operations intelligence within the Army at that time was highly secretive, and virtually nothing was known about it outside of the confines of the Army. He would serve as an advisor to the Army in Korea, focused on intelligence activities. It was here, at this point, that he also began to serve as the chief intelligence advisor to the H.I.D., which was the Korean government's intelligence arm. This went on for a period of time in 1956 and into 1957. Sometime in 1957, he was alleged to have couriered treasury plates from the U.S. to Japan for use in a counterfeiting operation related to the production of North Korean currency. You have to understand that during that time frame, One of the counterintelligence approaches was to flood foreign countries that were foes with excess currency, thus creating significant weimar like inflation, which would be disastrous to the economy. This same technique was later used to try to destroy aspects of the Cuban economy as well. By February 7, 1957, he was transferred out of field operations intelligence at his own request and he was reassigned to Field Operations Intelligence Far East Headquarters in Tokyo, becoming attached to the 441st Counterintelligence Corps Group. As Dick Russell would suggest in his book, there was a significant retreat of the U.S. counterintelligence forces out of Korea at that time, post-war, and Nagel would supervise the review of top-secret military intelligence files in Tokyo while in his new position. Part of the exercises that they went through were the consolidation and transfer of the files. Dick Russell would speak to Nagel's brother-in-law, Lewis Gambert, who would later report that Nagel had multiple stashes of documents that he had retained from those files. He wasn't supposed to have them, but he'd gotten them on film. It was secret information, and Lewis assumed that he would use it as some sort of leverage by threatening to disclose certain things later on. Let's take a pause here from the timeline and discuss this latest action that I just described because it seems consistent with what Nagel has done in other circumstances. And it raises the basic question that he obviously had a spy camera, that standard Minolta camera that was actually found in his possession during the bank robbery. And why he didn't take more pictures of other documents that he purportedly had in hand, for instance, his own letter to J. Edgar Hoover, warning Hoover of the impending assassination attempt on the president's life, well, you just have to wonder. Well, We're going to get to that topic in a minute, but it's a great example of these pieces of evidence that have been referenced to by Nagel that have never been found and have never found the light of day. He was a smart man, and so, again, why... He didn't just photograph that letter to Hoover before he sent it is beyond me. Anyway, so it's now about November 1957, and Nagel is still overseas. At this time, he is alleged to have been recruited by John Lampert into a CIA project that was aimed at getting Soviet Colonel Nikolai Eroshkin to defect. Eroshkin was the military attache to the Soviet embassy in Japan, and he had been suspected of being an illegal GRU representative in Japan, and he had been suspected of being an illegal GRU representative in Japan. What is important about this event in our story is that it becomes the original intersection of Nagel and Lee Harvey Oswald, because Nagel purports that Oswald was apparently involved in this project. According to Nagel, Oswald and one other American visited the Soviet embassy in Tokyo. Apparently, there was a picture taken of Oswald by the Japanese as he entered the Soviet embassy. They are introduced to each other under aliases. As Nagel tells it, the two men, he and Oswald, would meet on one other occasion along with a doctor, Chikeo Fujisawa. They would do other things, too, together, as well as including a frequenting of the Queen Bee, You've heard of that place before, the exclusive nightclub in Tokyo that was later shown to be a honey trap for U.S. personnel, an espionage play, and a trap by the Russians to attract U.S. officials who might give up sensitive information. More already said about that in a previous episode on Oswald, so I won't go into that in detail here. But the point here is simple, and that is that Nagel claims that they were engaged in all of this together, and he also claims that Oswald had an older girlfriend at the time, named Midori, who lived in the suburb of Yokohama. Nagel would continue to claim that he was on loan to the CIA at this time, on loan by the Counterintelligence Corps. It was now 1958, and Nagel's troubles with the military were beginning to surface. He had met a beautiful young Japanese girl, which, ironically, he happened to be investigating her father as part of his routine activities. He fell in love and at one point came under scrutiny for having her in his office quarters. He was reprimanded, and this began to create tension amongst the authorities in his unit, including Colonel William Rainford, who he accused in a letter as being unfit for duty. It was a letter that Nagel would send to the Army's Inspector General. Nagel would make all sorts of charges about personal injustices and competence, corruption, mismanagement, you name it, maladministration. How much of this is true and how much of this was the beginning of certain paranoid manifestations by Nagel is not very clear. But it does appear to be very clear that the officers in his unit by this time were growing weary of Nagel's actions to bring notoriety to their operations. Allegedly warned by a friend of his, Jun Murai, head of the Tohoku Regional Police Bureau, and a Mr. Masui of the Crime Prevention Section of Japan's National Police Agency, they apprised him that the Japanese had penetrated the Eroshkin Project and that it would be better for Nagel to disassociate himself from it. So, as a result, sometime around January 10, 1958, Nagel drops out of the alleged Eroshkin defection plan. As Nagel tells it, as part of his punishment for going rogue on Colonel Rainford, he refers Nagel to the U.S. Army Hospital in Tokyo, for guess what a psychiatric evaluation more formally in the reports it was a result of his attitude over being reported for having his fiancee in his bachelor quarters as you might have expected no neurosis or psychosis is reported but the authorities in this unit nevertheless used it to their advantage obviously and he is now relieved of all of his sensitive duties following his release from the hospital in Tokyo Again, this is early 1958, and his letter-writing campaigns got prolific at this moment, sending correspondence not only to the Department of the Army, but also to U.S. Senator Jacob Javits, columnist Drew Pearson, and it was all complaining of alleged security violations within the Counterintelligence Corps. No doubt, sending letters to such public figures about things happening so surreptitiously has to mean either one of two things to me. When I listen to all of this, it means that he either was having severe mental problems or there really was some severe things going on that needed to be talked about. Because, let's face it, Nagel wasn't crazy. But there is no doubt that some of the emotional and psychological issues that we mentioned earlier were probably still present. And so how much of this behavior at that moment was a function of that amalgamation of problems? Well, I'll leave that up to you. None of us were there, so it's hard to tell, but I certainly see this as being a factor. And like so many things in life, the truth probably lies somewhere in between all of this. There probably were bad things going on inside the counterintelligence Corps, and Nagel was probably getting more paranoid as a result of it, and the cumulative effects of all the things that happened to him already in life. Well, it was an obvious mixture of two explosive ingredients. I'm willing to bet on that one. An event that happened just around this time frame, about February 1958, was, by Nagel's own account, confirming as it relates to his own paranoia. He would later tell a story of how he would participate in the alleged kidnapping and then the murder of Marine Sergeant Emmett Dugan. Dugan was suspected as having been defected in place to the Chinese. We'll tell more of that story in detail by the time we get through all the Nagel episodes. But suffice it to say that right around the same time frame, once again, the U.S. Army sent him to Tokyo for another psychiatric evaluation, and this time for making allegations about security violations directly to the Department of the Army, instead of through regular Army channels. And again, the psychiatrists in Tokyo would conclude that no disease state was found. It is worth a little chuckling commentary as we listen to all of that to think that Nagel's superiors at the Counterintelligence Corps probably sat around the table, maybe perhaps drinking a cup of coffee, thinking that, you know, what in the hell is this guy thinking? Here we are, the Counterintelligence Corps, and hardly anybody knows about us. And here he's been in field operations intelligence, been given a top secret clearance at some point. And exposed to all of the secret Army intelligence-gathering apparatus that exists conventionally, and then he goes off on a writing campaign to hire ups at the Department of the Army. The guy must be crazy. Well, for what it's worth, I think I might have sent him for a psychiatric evaluation as well. Maybe just asking, are you effing stupid? I might not even have asked if he was crazy. Well, anyway, a few months later in March 1958, he marries Mitsuko Takahashi, the beautiful Japanese girl that I just mentioned, and who I said earlier had a father that Nagel was allegedly investigating at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. Well, one thing is for sure, if anything in this whole crazy scenario is true, it's that it was not a smart move on his part to ignore the conflict of interest that he may have had in dating this young woman who was the daughter of a person he was formally investigating. As you might have expected, less than a month later, on April 21, 1958, the whole thing brought on a series of charges against him. He was informed that he was being investigated for compromising classified material. Apparently, a subordinate had claimed that Nagel permitted Japanese nationals to have unauthorized access to classified defense information. Nagel was immediately relieved of all of his CIC duties. And it was easy, I think at this point, for the higher-ups to say that it was due to mental instability. Even though there wasn't one shred of psychiatric evaluation up to this point that would support that entry in the military files. Nevertheless, all of his security clearances were revoked. The obvious question in all of this was whether or not Nagel During this 1958 timeframe, had become a double agent, and it is alleged that he did specify to Bernard Fensterwald in 1978 that he had worked for the Soviets while he was a member of the Counterintelligence Corps. He allegedly later told one of his Leavenworth cellmates that during his entire service, whatever the truth is, there, there is no doubt that Nagel had some connection to the Russians at some point. Ultimately, he did tell Jim Garrison that he had functioned as a double agent. I'm sure at this point that our government just wanted a decorated war hero like Nagel to go quietly. And so, several months later, by July 15, 1958, the government would ship him back to the U.S. And upon recommendation of the Pentagon's Intelligence Security Department, he was removed from military intelligence and reassigned to Fort Dix in New Jersey as a basic infantryman. Nagel himself didn't sit still about what was happening to him. And you guessed it, he began to write. About a month later, on August 28, 1958, he would file a long contestation about illegal Army activities and send it to the Inspector General of the Army in Washington, including his allegations of security violations within military intelligence and the injustices that he felt he had been dealt by his CIC superiors in retaliation for his disclosures in Japan. His letter did produce a bit of a stir, but nothing seemed to be happening, and so on October 5, 1958, Nagel would write his first letter of resignation to the Army. But less than 10 days later, on October 14, 1958, he would withdraw that letter of resignation after allegedly being informed that the conditions of his current assignment would not be permanent and that the matter discussed in his 28th of August, 1958 letter to the Inspector General would be investigated. By 1959, the Army had come to stronger conclusions about Nagel, and on April 14th, 1959, they declared him ineligible for further duty within the Counterintelligence Corps. What happens next in April, May, June, 1959 time frame relates to an incident that reunites him, with Professor Fujisawa. Nagel maintains that Fujisawa tried to contact him via mail at Fort Dix, and thereafter ensues an event which is quite interesting. Nagel is obviously sensitive to the fact that he's being watched, so he notifies the Trenton, New Jersey FBI office that Fujisawa has contacted him. Keep in mind that Fujisawa is at least in some circles believe to be a communist. The FBI then suggests to Nagel that he go meet with Fujisawa, and he allegedly meets with him twice in New York, where Fujisawa allegedly seeks to recruit him as a Soviet agent, purportedly even resorting to attempted blackmail, which might expose some of Nagel's activities that had occurred overseas already in support of the Soviets. Nagel allegedly scares him off by claiming that he's wearing a wire. And he then informs members of the Trenton FBI office, meeting with them at Fort Dix. But apparently they express the opinion that Fujisawa is not a Soviet agent. What to make of all this, I don't know, but more to come. In the summer of 1959, Nagel is back home with his new wife and she's pregnant. And in June of 1959, they had their first child. Teresa Dolores, who was born at Fort Dix. By the end of August 1959, Nagel is really through with the Army, so he sends another letter of resignation. Nagel himself would later claim that it was his wife who insisted on the resignation. Nagel was really through with the Army, and the Army was through with him. And on October 29, 1959, he would receive an honorable discharge and move with his wife to Los Angeles. Shortly thereafter, on November 20, 1959, the Nagels would have their second and last child, Robert Lamont. Nagel was now a civilian, and he would begin work in December 1959 as an investigator for the state of California in the Fraud Division of the State's Department of Employment. Nagel would allege that it was around this time that he would again become a paid informant for the CIA. Later, he would say that during the period of 1959 through 1963, as a commissioned officer of the United States Army and as a civilian, he acted, off and on, as he would put it, as a confidential informant for the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well, both at his own volition and upon solicitation by the FBI. It is not clear exactly when, but things began to get stormy with his wife, and there are various events which occurred during this next couple of years that would give indication that he was beginning to have emotional issues around all of that as a result. In March, 1961, he was transferred to California's Department of Alcohol Beverage Control, or ABC. And he would function as a liquor control investigator. Nagel would make allegations that the California Department of Alcohol Beverage Control itself, at a wide variety of functions that went well beyond what is generally known to be their purview, implying that they had stronger ties to the central government in terms of doing undercover investigative work, perhaps even having parked a small number of government employees from places like the CIA there, a perfect cover for undercover domestic work. Still others would say that military intelligence was using Nagel during this time frame to do all sorts of things, including chaperoning high-ranking Japanese visitors in California, despite Nagel's official resignation from the Army in 1959. Nagel's wife left him several times. It's not really clear when his wife left him for the first time, but it's fairly clear that she left him for the second time in February 1962, taking their two children and moving to a downtown LA apartment. These events, the loss of his family, may very well have triggered another iterative round of mental and emotional instability that most certainly would be a factor in anyone's life, at least a contributing factor when it comes to stress levels. That brings us to 1962 when Nagel, under the direction of someone unknown, began to surveil Steve Roberts, He was the West Coast representative of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Recognize that name? Yep. It's the same one that Oswald was involved with. Nagel would describe Roberts as a friend of mine in L.A., and when I first met him, he was a functionary in the Socialist Workers' Party. And I was definitely working for an American intelligence agency. I knew him in both an official and an unofficial capacity. By April and May of 1962, Nagel's stress was beginning to show more overtly again as he was having trouble with his marriage, and he twice checked himself in to the Veterans Administration Psychiatric Hospital located in Brentwood, right there in L.A. Related to one of those visits, on May 15, 1962, the VA psychiatrist Harvey D. Weintraub reported that Nagel apparently had been doing well at his job in spite of his marital difficulties and until just recently when a more acute crisis arose causing him to feel that he could no longer hold his job. In the notes, the clinicians would write he is at present toying with the idea of resigning. His wife apparently is a highly unstable individual who has refused to take care of their two children, has frequently deserted the family for varying periods of time and consistently refuses to seek any help for herself. The patient has consistently felt that a lot of the problem was his fault and has obviously been turning his anger against his wife upon himself. He has had fantasies of killing his wife and or himself. He complains of a recurrent nightmare which he has been having for the past two weeks in which he is back on a hill in Korea, being attacked by the enemy and insistently radioing his superiors for aid and assistance. They refuse to send him any reinforcements and merely insist that he stay on the hill and defend it. This is approximately an accurate description of an actual situation in which he was involved. He complains that he is unable to understand why he is having this type of dream when his current problem concerns his marital difficulties. When examined at the hospital in Los Angeles, the doctor noted that on occasions, when examined, he was uncomposed, tearful, and admitted to suicidal preoccupation. Things were already bad with his wife, and on May 31, 1962, Nagel would run into her, at the New Ginza Bar in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. He sits down beside her, drinks several glasses of sake, and then takes her back to her apartment on South Union Avenue. At that moment, an argument erupted, and she won't let him inside of the apartment. But Nagel wouldn't stop. He kicked in the door. He chases Mitsuko onto the front lawn. The apartment manager hears the ruckus and takes Mitsuko into his apartment and then he calls the police. Nagel is arrested on a drunk and disorderly charge, and Mitsuko tells police she is planning to start legal action for divorce. Around this same time, his performance was deteriorating at work, and on June 8, 1962, he was suspended by ABC by reason of unsatisfactory service and or for unauthorized release of information to the LAPD. You see, it was alleged that he was fired for stating to the press that the Los Angeles Vice Squad was shaking down too many businesses. You know, you can't shake down too many businesses. I guess there's a a good number. And if you just stay around it, that's enough. Well, Nagel was dismissed by ABC on June 27th, just a couple of weeks later. There are a myriad of stories about just exactly how he lost his job at ABC. One FBI file reports a statement from Nagel saying that he lost his job after having been accused of taking a $20,000 bribe, which, of course, he stated he turned down. There is another story that Nagel himself told his brother-in-law, Robert Gambert, that he lost his job over an investigation into organized crime in relation to a Lake Tahoe, Nevada, casino. One government file repeats the story again about the alleged MLA vice squad shakedown of too many businesses that Nagel perhaps made comments about to the press. And Nagel himself apparently affirmed in sworn testimony at his El Paso trial that he was dismissed for making a statement to the newspapers. Whatever the exact reasons were, he was, once again, clearly involved with drama at his employer and his employer currently didn't like it. And so they got rid of him. Weeks later, in early July, Nagel would be contacted by the FBI in Los Angeles, and not long after that, he would be shot in the chest, allegedly on a Southern California beach, while meeting someone between Malibu and Oxnard. He would drive himself to Wadsworth VA Hospital in LA, but he refused to identify the assailants or furnish any information about the shooting to the police. A friend of Nagel's named Bill Lynn said that Nagel was very closed mouth about the circumstance of the shooting. Lynn would go on to comment and say maybe it was organized crime or an L.A. cop or a communist. He told another friend, John Margaine, that he'd been investigating some guy with a prison record who was not supposed to have a liquor license. The man shot Nagel, but he said it was never reported that Nagel shot the other guy, too. Nagel's relatives believed that the shooting had something to do with the Nevada casino situation. Nagel would report to one of his doctors, Ed Weinstein, that the shooting probably had something to do with hoodlum threats. But at the end of the day, there never has been anyone that has come up with anything conclusive. And of course, Nagel himself has really never told the truth about the whole thing. There was even a theory that it might have been a self inflicted wound. But for sure, It was always something that Nagel didn't want to talk about, according to his friend, Arthur Greenstein. Nagel used discretion even when driving himself to the hospital that night. He called ahead, and he described it as a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his chest. While he was still at the hospital convalescing, around July 23, 1962, Nagel approached clinical social worker Charlotte Jackson, demanding that the police be contacted regarding the return of his wallet, his notebook, and his car, the car that he had been shot in, and, oh, one more thing, he was now ready to talk to the police and requested that the Internal Affairs Department of the police be notified. Well, nothing much came of this, but he eventually retrieved his possessions in his car, and afterward he filed a civil rights complaint against the police. Imagine that. Some believe that he used this ploy to try to get money from the state of California, consisting of retirement contributions and accumulated leave. Once Nagel was healthy enough, he would drive across country to his sister's home in Queens, New York. And once he got there, the family would notice that his car had been riddled with bullet holes. He tells his brother-in-law, Robert Gambert, that is his sister's husband, that he needs to contact the FBI in New York. Apparently, he was attempting to obtain some form of employment with the FBI as an investigator, but he was unsuccessful. From there, Nagel made his way to Washington, D.C., and he was allegedly approached during this time frame by an individual whom he felt was either a special agent of the FBI or a Soviet espionage agent. This individual apparently talked with him about domestic intelligence and talked of giving him an intelligence assignment. He was given instructions to go to a bar, which would lead him to a particular bar in Miami, Florida, where he was then to wear a red sweater and meet another contact. Not long after, in August of 1962, he would get a Mexican tourist card in Los Angeles. And about a week later, on August 24, 1962, he would cross the Mexican border at El Paso and enter Mexico. His fleet to Mexico, what was it? Was he just running from something or on his way to engage in a covert activity? He arrived in Mexico City in late August 1962 and there he would meet Arthur Greenstein at the Hotel Luma. Nagel would reveal to Greenstein that there was a subpoena out for him in California, one that he was trying to get away from and that it had to do with the bribery charge against him. One notable thing is that Greenstein would recall that Nagel had a number of documents in the trunk of his car, and they were included in a series of cardboard boxes there. And Nagel would tell him that they were just documents proving what a shafty deal he had got out of California's Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. Inside the bar at the Hotel Luma was Franz Weyhoff, who appeared in this story as the bartender. Nagel would tell Greenstein that Franz Weyhoff was someone who worked for Czech intelligence. More to come on this story. But Nagel claims in September 1962 that he was invited to attend a reception at the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. He states that he contacted the CIA in Langley, Virginia, and used the name of Joe Kramer with either a C or a K when making his contact with the CIA. He said he told CIA the above information and wanted some advice as to whether to go through with such an assignment. The CIA simply told him to go see the FBI. While still in Mexico City, he allegedly refuses an offer from some foreign government to participate in a criminal offense against the United States. What that was, nobody knows. And he reportedly contacts the FBI in Mexico City and tells them about this. At around the same time, he meets Robert Graham at a party hosted by a woman from the Chilean and Colombian embassies. Arthur Greenstein remembers Graham, not only to him as Bob, and he was a tall American who wore glasses and looked to be in his mid-30s. He introduced himself to Greenstein as Bob and said he was a salesman or a representative of an American book company. Bob spoke gringo Spanish in an overly slow but grammatically correct way, according to Greenstein. The guy was coming on like a real bon vivant, kissing the girls and drinking fairly heavily, but in his remarks he seemed to be a right-wing type individual. Either that night or subsequently, Bob and Arthur would discuss Nagel's involvement in the CIA's attempt to get Soviet Colonel Nikolai Eroshkin to defect in Tokyo, and Nagel's relationship with Professor Shakao Fujisawa. Apparently, this was Greenstein's only encounter with Bob. Afterward, Nagel made some disparaging remarks about him, saying something like, there's a typical CIA agent. Dick Russell, in his book, would say that Bob would become, for the next year, Nagel's CIA contact, and he would instruct Nagel to take the bait offered by a foreign government. According to Dick Russell, Nagel says that the CIA double-agent mission he was about to embark on involved his participation in a disinformation project directed against the Soviet embassy at Mexico City in 1962 at the onset of the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis. This participation, he added, led to his later indirect involvement in a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy and other highly placed government officials in September 1963. Nagel has said little more about the man who sent him on his mission, except that Bob was a subordinate CIA officer whose ultimate reporting reached all the way up to Desmond Fitzgerald in the CIA. Around this time, Nagel would allegedly sign a contract with this Graham, this Bob Graham, apparently as an employed CIA contract agent. Nagel has referred to him at times as Robert Graham, and he did so quite often in the 1960s. On September 28, 1962, Nagel appears at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. He's tense, he's nervous, he's agitated and antagonistic stating that he had been approached in Mexico City for recruiting. He refused to say by or on behalf of what country. Who was it that he was working for at this moment? Well, most of my connections in 1962 and 1963 was with the CIA and FBI, Nagel would later say to Dick Russell in 1977. And there was a reason for it. He would go on to say that in Mexico City and Miami, some of his adventures were done for specific reasons with a specific objective in mind. He wasn't exactly an amateur in those days, as he said, and he would go on to say, I had a pretty good idea how things functioned on both sides. On October 1st, 1962, a few days later, he would appear again at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. This time asking a bit more mundane of questions. He wanted to know what had been done in regard to getting the state of California to pay him the money due him. He was sent to the collections section. He would then drop a bombshell and ask what section of the embassy he should contact to renounce his United States citizenship. He was advised by the collection section that they could not intercede for him in collecting money from the state of California. Imagine that. He then appeared in the passport and citizenship section and asked what the penalty would be for going to an Iron Curtain country and what effect it would have on his citizenship. He was advised that such action would be in violation of federal law. He then reportedly tells Arthur Greenstein that he had actually come to Mexico City to renounce his citizenship. Now, I guess he's getting a little distracted from his double agent duties. In this same late September, early October time frame, he allegedly investigates attorney Harriet Buhai, who was allegedly a member of the Southern California District Committee of the Communist Party of the USA. He apparently was in Mexico City at the time. Nagel has stated that he felt Buhai was a representative of the same foreign principle with which Nagel was associated with whoever that was. The Russians? Perhaps. By the time that October 1962 rolls around, the United States had already become embroiled in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Apparently, around this time is when Nagel got his most notable assignments. He was assigned to a disinformation project which targeted the Soviet embassy in Mexico City, the one I just mentioned, and it was ostensibly related to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, on the opposite side of his double agent dangle, he would be assigned by this mysterious Soviet agent to look into rumors of a JFK assassination plot sponsored by Alpha 66. That's right, Alpha 66, the organization that was started by Antonio Vesciana. It's an ultra-right-wing arm of a well-organized and CIA-backed, anti-Castro organization. At around this time, he was allegedly shown Oswald's photograph and given an assignment related to him, but not related to any assassination plot. Oswald was under intermittent surveillance since the day he arrived back in the United States, Nagel would tell Dick Russell. Soviet intelligence, said Nagel, was more interested in Oswald than the Americans. The reason was When he was in the Soviet Union, he was considered emotionally unstable, prone to commit some act that could bring embarrassment to the Soviet Union. This was before he was, in fact, involved in anything like that. On October 21, 1962, Nagel would leave Mexico City, and the next day he would check into the Holiday Inn located in Laredo, Texas. There, he allegedly made a brief inquiry into the status of Oswald. Dick Russell writes that shortly before departing Mexico in October 1962, that Nagel had made an arrangement with the Hotel Luma's bartender, Franz Wehoff, apparently a secret operative for the Czech intelligence service. Wehoff sent him to a weapons specialist, where Nagel had said he obtained a 22 caliber revolver equipped with a welded-on silencer. The original target, he added, was a well-known Cuban exile leader in Miami named Rolando Masferrer. In just a few short days he would be back in New York again visiting his sister Eleanor Gambert at her home again in Queens, New York. While he was in New York in November 1962 he allegedly contacts the FBI letting them know that he wanted to expose the ABC back in California and at the same time he writes to the Adjutant General Department of the Army inquiring as to whether if it is again possible for him to obtain a commission in the United States Army Reserve, with Nagel saying that he would like to be reappointed as a captain with concurrent active duty in the reserves. He was obviously searching at this moment for some form of grounding, having lost his family, lost his permanent job, and with something more going on underneath with the intelligence communities. In early December 1962, Nagel leaves New York for Washington, D.C., where he is approached again by an individual believed to be working for the Soviets. He allegedly contacts the CIA in Virginia for more instruction. At about the same time, on December 7, 1962, he gets a response back from the Army on his bid to be reinstated in the Reserves. Infantry Lieutenant Colonel Lewis J. Schulter responds by instructing Nagel to submit an application, but adding, I do not believe that your chances are very good. This opinion is based upon the efficiency reports you received on active duty. Based on correspondence in your file, I am certain that you are familiar with the contents. Seemingly everywhere on the East Coast, on December 15, 1962, He then contacts the FBI in Jacksonville, Florida. He advises them that he had been approached shortly before in Washington, D.C. by an individual working for the Soviets. Nagel at this time was noted to be in an inebriated condition, as noted by the FBI men who would also state that he was vague in answering questions. He would later write to Arthur Greenstein that he had initiated an artifice that resulted in his being questioned by the FBI, and he got something off his chest while sitting in the agent's car, whatever that means. The events of the next couple of weeks would once again reveal the emotional and psychological troubles that Nagel would find himself in. Somewhere around the time frame of December 15th to December 20th, 1962, shortly before Christmas again, he would later describe himself to Arthur Greenstein as running scared now, racing west to Tallahassee in Florida, and then south to St. Pete. And then sadly, on December 20th, 1962, Nagel would check himself in to the Bay Pines Veterans Administration Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida, complaining of severe headaches, blackouts, and amnesia. According to records, it would state The patient feels his intentions were to go to California, but he came to Florida. Instead, he cannot remember any part of his trip until he arrived in Tallahassee, where the police suggested he come to Bay Pines. He said the travel check showed that his journey to Florida took 10 days, having spent two days in Washington, D.C., a stopover in Jacksonville, Florida, and so forth. There at Bay Pines... His condition would be diagnosed as chronic brain syndrome associated with brain trauma with behavioral reaction characterized by passive-aggressive and paranoid features. And then just a few days later, during that same stay, on December 28, 1962, a psychological report on Nagel would state that he recently had been visiting his sister in New York City, Following this, the patient is quite vague as to his movements until he came to Bay Pines. Did he already know of the various plots that were underway to kill the president? Was there a stress already present at uh, what was beginning to unfold, or was he just cracking up on his own? What is curiously coincidental about these dates is that on December 29th, Nagel would later claim that an assassination plot against JFK was to have happened on that day in Miami at the Orange Bowl as Kennedy addressed the survivors of Brigade 2506 who made their way onto the beaches during the Bay of Pigs. The plan he surmised was going to use a concealed bomb but it never got past the talking stage. Clearly Nagel was showing signs of his illness and they seemed to be getting more acute around this time frame. Seemingly a natural inclination He would get to writing while in the hospital, this time writing a letter to JFK himself. Yes, the president himself, describing his disenchantment with the government's treatment of him. In the letter, he doesn't mention any alleged assassination plots. He does state, though, that since his 1954 injuries, I have never been the same mentally or physically. Although the Army returned me to a general duty status and assigned me to military intelligence. I was aware of my condition, but pride made me try to hang on. He would go on to state that his children are living in a foster home, which actually was not true at the time. Later, Nagel would renounce this letter as a complete hoax, stating, While the signature appears to be my own, the letter was neither composed nor typed by him. While he was still there at the Pines VA Hospital in January 1963, he would once again write a letter, and this time it was to the hospital administrator, Dr. M.L. Schwartz. If it is possible that I am in the process of what is commonly and often in diffidence, referred to as cracking up, I believe myself to be cognizant of some of the when, where, why, what, how factors which need to be answered. And even though a rather recent emotional trauma may have pushed me over the brink, so to speak, the first factor, the win factor, began much, much earlier. He then goes on to describe his military experience. During this stay, he would once again also reach out to his old doctor friend, Edwin Weinstein, the world-renowned resident expert, who had treated Nagel after the second airplane crash in 1954? On January 10, 1963, he would write to the good doctor at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, saying, Evidently, I was self admitted to this hospital on December 20, 1962, <laughs> for reasons unknown to me at the present time. Nagel would fire off a second letter to Dr. Weinstein on January 21, 1963, saying, I received your letter dated January 9th, 1963, and judge from its contents that I have written to you. Please note that if the first letter to Dr. Weinstein was written on December 10th, the Dr. Weinstein's response could hardly have been penned on December 9th. So, just as a P.S. here as I'm writing this, there is something missing in the chain of correspondence here, or the dates are wrong. Nevertheless, Nagel would go on to tell Dr. Weinstein that if I have written to you, I do not recall doing so. However, there are many things which have occurred recently that I do not remember. Nagel would go on to describe the severe headaches, the loss of equilibrium, while standing or walking slowly. But he had no dizziness, and he also had a loss of memory for extended periods. And this had occasionally plagued him since the 1954 plane crash. He would go on to say, I might add here that these same occurrences have happened to me quite recently, but they've been more frequent and of longer duration and are the reason why I was admitted to this VA hospital. About a week or two later, on January 22, 1963, he was well enough to be discharged from Pines. When he got into his car and he began to travel south to Miami. Allegedly, he registers at the Biscayne Boulevard Holiday Inn under a false name. Nagel would later state that the character known as Angel in the Sylvia Odio story was in Miami during the latter part of January 1963, and Angel may have stayed at the same Holiday Inn located on Biscayne Boulevard. On several occasions, Nagel visited a well-lighted Cuban restaurant that was located on Flagler Street in downtown Miami and also a small photo shop that was located on a nearby street. This shop had some kind of a connection with the MRP, or Movimento Revolucionario de Pueblo. The next day, there in Miami, on January 24, 1963, he allegedly contacts the FBI using the same Joseph Kramer alias that we referred to earlier. He would ask the FBI in Miami a rather bizarre question. Asking if his Cuban or Russian sources gave him a pistol with a silencer and some microfilm, would he be permitted to return those both to his U.S. contacts so that he could be of further use to the U.S. government? Later in January 1963, Nagel states that this was a time in Miami spent for a reason. And if it was true, it was a big one. Only for who was he doing this work and why? Nagel says that he was investigating some key members of the Miami exile community including Manuel Artema, Roland Moss Ferrer, Sergio Arcacha Smith, and Aladio Del Valle. Obviously all well-known names in the assassination story that we've told thus far. By early 1963, Nagel was again on the move and headed back west, where he was in Dallas by this time, staying there for a few days and apparently inquiring about Oswald. From there, he goes to Nueva Laredo, Texas, where he apparently meets his Soviet contact. Codename, as Dick Russell points out, Oaxaca. Not much is known about Nagel's movement for the rest of February and March and into April of 1953, and into April of 1963 but soon enough sometime in April he does show up in Wilmington Delaware to visit his friend Arthur Greenstein telling Arthur that he had driven through the southern tier of the United States and had stopped to drop off some presents <laughs> whatever that meant now again in the Washington DC area the CIA photographs him outside of the Soviet embassy in Washington and the Soviets based on what Nagel says later allegedly put Nagel to watching Marina Oswald. Nagel conducts an inquiry in Dallas and San Antonio into Marina's reported desire to go back to the USSR. According to a letter to Arthur Greenstein, he simply checked on Marina at the San Antonio Bureau of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. I believed I was functioning for the CIA for my inquiry into her, Nagel would state. I was provided photos of her. I've seen her, but never met her there is a possibility that she has seen me with other people. This assignment, according to Nagel, had nothing to do with the assassination. According to Nagel, he had assignments from his handlers during the spring and summer of 1963 to inquire into the current status of a number of persons, all members of the Communist Party of the USA, residing in the Southern California area. That led, in May 1963, to his investigation of Socialist Worker Party, Congress of Racial Equality, Fair Play for Cuba committee member and affiliate, Von Marlowe, whose real name is Von Snipes. And this, Nagel states, was a particular assignment that he was doing on behalf of the CIA. He said he had investigated Snipes and his wife, Priscilla, in conjunction with my inquiry about Oswald, one of the two Cubans who were associating with Oswald in August and September 1963. And one of these that also fits the description of one of the two Cubans who allegedly visited Sylvia Odio at Magellan Circle with Oswald the day before his trip to Mexico in September 1963, was witnessed entering the the on-the-beach bookstore on two separate occasions while he was under surveillance. The bookstore was located in Venice near L.A., and Snipes was the proprietor. Snipes, who once boasted that he was a good shot with a rifle, was considered for recruitment to hit JFK. In June of 1963, it was an incident that would have taken place during JFK's visit to the Beverly Hills Hotel, but that project never materialized, as Nagel put it. We'll cover more on the Von Snipes affair later. In June 1963, Nagel allegedly took a 16-millimeter photograph of Angel and Leopoldo in Los Angeles. Not surprisingly, this photograph has never surfaced. Just around the same time, once again, Nagel would request admission to a VA hospital, this time the same one in upscale Brentwood. An FBI report later read, subject's condition diagnosed by Veteran Administration Los Angeles on June 4, 1963, as depression, tearful, nervous, rigid, and then stated that Nagel would only utter words, got to see my kids. Nagel was seen by a psychiatrist, but not granted admission. By July 1963, and for the next three months, right up to the moment that he was arrested at the bank, Nagel contends that he spent most of his time on one subject, Lee Harvey Oswald. He allegedly contacts the fair play for Cuba committee's Steve Roberts in LA about Oswald. By late July or early August of 1963 he is once again back in Mexico City staying there for a short while. But in early August he again returns to Los Angeles from Mexico City borrowing a Colt 45 pistol from his friend Bill Lynn and then he departs abruptly again leaving a cryptic note for Von Marlowe. Nagel was issued a new passport on August 6, 1963, and it's on August 20, 1963, at an unspecified location that he allegedly takes a 16-millimeter photograph of Angel and Leopoldo. And just about a few days later, sometime between August 23rd and the 27th, he allegedly makes the famous audio recording of four conspirators discussing assassination, presumably recorded in New Orleans. He would later give differing accounts of the tape's contents, stating at one time that the tape had been stolen, stating later that the tape was safe. And as we now know, that same tape has never materialized. Right around that same date, August 27, 1963, Dick Russell would write that he was apparently cut off from his CIA contact, and then Nagel was issued his orders, from his Soviet controller, Oxica. Nagel would go on to say that in the summer of nineteen sixty three I received instructions to initiate certain actions against mister Oswald, who was the indispensable tool in the conspiracy and thereafter to depart the United States legally. I was to try to persuade Oswald that the deal was phony, and if that didn't work, and it looked like things were going to progress beyond the talking stage, to get rid of him. Nagel, when he was unable to secure direct contact with his direct CIA contact, allegedly complains to Desmond Fitzgerald about his alleged predicament. Sometime in this time frame, he would come to learn that Oswald is allegedly under hypnosis as administered by David Ferry, and he would relate this fact after the assassination to a JFK researcher, Richard Popkin was now famous for writing the first and seminal work on the idea of there being two or more Oswalds. Nagel, now back in Mexico City, would again show up at the Hotel Luma, allegedly seen and be seen there by Robert Clayton Buick, a rather famous gringo turned bullfighter. Buick also alleges to have seen Oswald there, but he did not see Nagel and Oswald together. It was not long until Nagel was again back in Los Angeles in early September 1963, just a few weeks now left before the bank incident. It was in this time frame that he allegedly stashes evidence of conspiracy and places it with a friend in L.A. Nagel would later claim that he had made arrangements in the event of my demise by accident or other cause to have my past illegal services performed for defendant, the Pentagon, the Pentagon and the services I suspected I had performed for a foreign nation and other illegal activities on the part of uh, the Pentagon and the CIA made public and verified by evidence that I had secreted at various locations in the United States. We know now that no such material has ever surfaced. Was it stolen, heisted by interested parties such as the CIA, or did it simply never exist? The next few weeks heat up with things Oswald. He makes his way to New Orleans, and sometime during the week of September 10th through the 16th, he meets Oswald in New Orleans and tries to dissuade him from cooperating with plotters. Apparently, he is unsuccessful, but regardless, part of this continuing story is that on either September 15th or 16th, 1963, just four days before the bank incident, He allegedly meets Oswald in Jackson Square in New Orleans and advises him to meet Oaxaca in Mexico City on September 26th. Allegedly, Nagel has a street vendor photograph the two of them without Oswald's knowledge. This photo, as we know, never materializes. Later, Nagel himself would deny that this photo was ever taken. As part of this trip, sometime around the same time frame, he contacts the FBI in New Orleans using his Kramer alias. Was all of this true or was all of this just a bunch of cock and bull? Well, renowned attorney Bernard Fensterwald, who represented Nagel in the VA case, believed him. Fensterwald would later be quoted as saying, the USSR ordered Nagel to eliminate Lee Harvey Oswald because They thought it might be an extreme embarrassment to them if he was caught, not because he was one of them. On the night of September 20th, Nagel allegedly leaves New Orleans and dispatches, which is the word he likes to use, a registered warning letter to J. Edgar Hoover. The letter never materializes, and he states that he possesses this receipt for the letter, the registered mail, and that he can produce it. Or that the FBI confiscated it on September 20th, 1963, the date of the bank incident, and they never returned it. Well, the receipt never materializes, but Nagel later makes an affidavit in support of the existence of the letter. We'll hear the affidavit itself in a later episode. I have never stated where that letter was mailed from or that I'd mailed it personally, Nagel told Dick Russell. I've always said I dispatched a letter at the instance of Joseph Kramer. I felt sure that if the FBI got a letter signed Joe Kramer and ran a computer or file check, they would look into it. And they would know this was not a crank letter. It is known that Joseph Kramer was a known alias of a communist agent. He was sure they would look into it. Later, Nagel writes, during the period 1962-63 to 63, and prior thereto, As a civilian, I may have performed intelligence services for a foreign nation after being deceived by signing a contract and by other reasons into thinking that I was functioning for the CIA. I arrived at this conclusion in September 1963 after conducting investigations and or inquiries into the activities, status, and or intentions of certain persons among whom were Franz Wehoff, a Mexican subject of German nationality, Manuel Artema, a leader of the Miami-based People's Revolutionary Movement, Vaughn L. Snipes, an executive director of the Los Angeles branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and Lee H. Oswald, later accused as the lone assassin of President John F. Kennedy. Years later, in 1967, while still incarcerated for the bank incident, he would write yet one more interesting letter, And this time, the letter went to Senator Richard Russell, a member of the Warren Commission. In that letter, he would write the following about one more event that occurred one day before the bank arrest on September 19th. He would say this to the good senator. I think you should be apprised that all information resulting from my surveillance of Mr. Oswald's activities, including his involvement in a conspiracy to murder President Kennedy, was passed on to Soviet officials without delay. In fact, my last report concerning him was dispatched the evening before my arrest. On September twentieth, 1963, the Date of the Bank incident, he was allegedly on his way to meet a contact in Juarez, and then he arrived in El Paso. He allegedly mails a letter to Desmond Fitzgerald and one to another unnamed CIA official at Langley headquarters. And he allegedly mails five bills and an airplane ticket to Mexico City to an unknown recipient. He would later claim the funds and the ticket were for Lee Harvey Oswald's Mexico City trip, but he would state, I have cause to believe that he was never given or did receive the $500. As many of you know and study the assassination story, there is much speculation on how Oswald obtained the funds to travel to and from Mexico City and pay for a hotel and other meals and expenses while he was there. Soon after all of this, Nagel walked into the bank and fired two shots that would land him in jail and federal prison for the better part of the next four and a half years. Nagel consistently denied he had tried to rob the bank and stated vehemently that his purpose for entering the bank was related to something else. And the something else as we now know it, as screwy as we all know it to be, was the JFK assassination. Thank you for listening to episode 184 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.